Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Welcome to The Stuff of Life. I'm your host, Julie Douglas. Who hasn't at one time or another wanted to duck out, slip through a portal, or just drift off for a while? Especially in a world that delivers new atrocities each day, not to mention the personal battles we wage with ourselves every time we blink open our eyes into consciousness. Maybe you've experienced that feeling, that you're stuck in the storyline you've created for yourself. So, if you could escape, unravel the tethers that bind you to the anxieties and concerns that plague day-to-day existence, would you shapeshift into another species? Becoming a different animal, it's like this kind of slightly childish dream. Or would you fully embrace your human existence, warts and all, allowing yourself to just be. Our minds are not as claustrophobic and screwed up as we tend to think when we start. Um, I mean, we, we certainly may have plenty of issues to work on, but there, there's a larger picture. Or maybe you'd just like to escape by laughing your ass off. In this episode, we explore how we manage the thorny business of life. Some of us look to mindfulness and embrace our thoughts, the good, the bad, the ugly, as does Chris Wenger of Shambhala Meditation Center of Atlanta. Some of us find peace in raucous peals of laughter like Lori Sugarman and Debbie Ellis, and some of us turn to the animal world. The feel of the project was about trying to kind of achieve sort of freedom somehow, just like to escape and kind of gallop, you know, across across the kind of green Alps and just sort of, you know, escape. kind of accumulation of like work and kind of relationships and family just kind of seem to 
gang up and he's like, oh, God, <laughs> sod it, sod it, let's become an animal, let's just escape, escape this and become a goat. That's designer and author of Goatman, How I Took a Holiday from Being Human, Thomas Thwaites. He once built a toaster from scratch and documented it. Kind of to my dismay, discovered that inside this object, which I'd bought for just kind of £3.94, like less than 10 bucks, um, there were kind of 400 different bits making up this thing. If you really go down and take everything apart, subcomponents, sub-subcomponents. Um, and at that time, I hadn't yet realised that I was going to spend the rest of my life making a toaster. Coming off his toaster project, he found that he was in a slump. He had woven a story around himself, and he couldn't figure out how to get out of it. That is, until he looked into the eyes of a dog he was pet-sitting and found his next portal to walk through. dog was just so kind of happy and content and, you know, just sort of interested in the world. Um, and, yeah, and I, you know, looking, looking at this mutt, I just sort of thought, yeah, it's... Um, you know, not a bad life, a dog's life. It's this sort of thought that I think you have when you're a child. I can remember thinking when I was, you know, a child and being, you know, having to go off to school, you know, in the cold and looking at our, our sort of family cat just sort of reclining on the uh, sofa and just thinking, oh, God, I'm so jealous. I want to be the cat. I can't remember how old I was, really, but for some reason, I just decided to, like, eat part of this houseplant without using my hands, and it was kind of this big, kind of bushy houseplant, and um, it was kind of a, like a very interesting experience, just sort of tugging at the kind of at the fronds of the like leaves and sort of just chewing them up like a sort of cow or indeed a goat or anything. I guess, yeah, that sort of um, early childhood dream kind of came back uh, <laughs> and hit me um, in my sort of adult life. And yeah, rather than just kind of dismissing it, I actually started to think oh, actually, that's kind of interesting. You know, I wonder if you could uh, sort of become a different animal for a while, at least sort of experience what it might be like. Initially, when Thomas applied for a grant from the Wellcome Trust to fund his human-to-animal project, his proposal was for him to become an elephant. But there were serious logistical problems. First, he'd have to bring in an external power source to move about in an enormous exoskeleton. And second, elephants are socially similar to humans, and being human was what Thomas yearned to take a holiday from. I ended up going to see a shaman um, to ask what animal I should, you know, try and become. Um, and yeah, and this shaman uh, told me that I should, you know, I was an idiot, of course, I was an idiot for considering I could become an elephant, um, and of course I should uh, be trying to become a goat, um, so uh, yeah, and I, I think she was right, actually. 
I think the shaman was very focused on this idea that you have to kind of know the animal and the only way and you know part of knowing the animal is kind of knowing you know being familiar with the environment. So you're probably wondering how all this went down. Here are the basics. Thomas decided to make his way to the Swiss Alps after mating season for reasons I trust you can suss out for yourself, which meant he'd have a short window between fall and winter to arrange his transformation into a goat. He set to work on goat body prototypes, eventually scrapping those and replacing them with prosthetics for his hands and feet, which lengthened his arms and legs, pitching 60% of his body forward just as a goat's would. Except in this case, it looked as though he was wearing wedge shoes. In his book, he describes the look as, quote, a cross-dresser at the back and post-World War II amputee patient in the front. His mom made him a waterproof jacket, and he finished the ensemble with a chest protector and a helmet just in case any goats decided to headbutt him. It was okay when I was, like, testing it out, just kind of clomping around my flat in London, you know, but it's a whole different kettle of fish when you're pitched forward, heading headfirst down a mountain, um, kind of accompanied by, like, a herd of, like... 50 sort of excited goats. What this project about becoming an animal is really getting at is this desire to experience the world from something else's perspective. Because we're all completely trapped inside our own brain and our own perception of the world. And so what I'm trying to do is to try and kind of get outside of myself and try and experience the world from a completely different perspective. Undoing five million years of human evolution to assume the anatomy of a quadrupede was more than a little painful, not to mention terrifying, while trying to navigate slippery rocks. There's just no getting around the fact that goats have evolved to spring across rocky mountain sides and humans have evolved to um, kind of carry shopping bags. So if you think, no big deal, I could do that, consider that Thomas also committed to eating like a goat. So lots and lots of grass. But how to break down all that cellulose without his own handy rumen, which is a kind of second stomach that goats use. First, he looked into a fecal transplant from a goat, essentially infusing his gut bacteria with goat feces to promote similar digestion. But he quickly realized that prospect was rife with unknowns. Then he explored the idea of breaking down the plant material by mixing it with industrial-grade purified cellulose enzyme. But the company that initially supplied him with a small quantity got wind of his intentions and shut off his supply, urging him to immediately dispose of it. So he settled on chewing up the grass, spitting it into an external pouch, 
and then breaking it down in a pressure cooker, adding in acid hydrolysis to create a leafy stew. You're definitely like in nature when you're kind of eating grass, uh, <laughs> like, you know, just going down and sort of tearing a big clump of juicy, fresh, sweet green grass with your teeth and chewing it up. Um, it's a nice experience. Um, yeah, I'd recommend it. Oh, and I should also tell you that Thomas didn't neglect the mental aspects of becoming a goat. In fact, he sought out something called transcranial magnetic stimulation of his frontal lobes. I thought, could I use this technique to induce lesions in the parts of my brain that kind of made me different from a goat? And so I emailed Joe Devlin at University College London, um, who uses... TMS um, in his research and yeah, asked him, could you make me feel more like a goat? He said, well, you know, he said, no, but I could, you can come in and we can sort of at least try and switch off your ability to vocalise um, using uh, TMS. And so that's what we did. And while Thomas wasn't able to replicate this particular mental state, he was able to dip into it without the aid of super strong magnets. I kind of was very much just kind of in the moment. But then there were times when I just couldn't help. My human sense of shame, maybe shame and embarrassment, kind of coming to the fore. Or like, you know, the times when, okay, it's sort of the end of the day or something can... You're tired and it's starting to rain and you start getting a little bit cold and suddenly, you know, it just doesn't seem that fun anymore and you know that there's a place, (laughs) you know, there's a place with like a nice hot fire and all that kind of stuff. So how close did Thomas get to becoming a goat? Probably kind of... Later than you might expect, I realised that becoming a goat is actually impossible um, at the moment, at least. But I think I got close, maybe as close as anyone has ever got. Um, I don't know. I mean, there could be. In fact, I'm sure there's somebody out there who maybe lives in the wild with goats all the time. but yeah, I think I, I don't know, it's hard to say. How can you, <laughs> how can you put a, a sort of percentage on, you know, how close you got to transforming into a, a goat? What Thomas did was extraordinary, but the impulse to do so is more ordinary than we think. It's actually an ancient human dream of ours. You don't have to look very far to kind of find like this kind of repeated idea of taking on characteristics of animals, um, you know, through history. You know, you've got like all the hundreds of kind of Greek myths um, where there's, you know, this kind of human animal kind of transformation and you would find this kind of transformation taking place in the sort of, you know, the earliest kind of cave paintings, cave art, 
you know, half human, half kind of beast. It's no surprise that we humans read a sense of liberation into animals. After all, they can do things we can't, like gallop over the Alps, or in the case of the Tibetan wind horse, gallop into the infinite. In the Buddhist teaching, wind horse is the fundamental energy of basic goodness, a kind of reality available to everyone. We're not talking goody two-shoe or Pollyanna goodness here, but a strength and integrity found in many forms, from a walk in nature to a genuine conversation with someone. Nobody possesses it. it nobody controls it. It's very dynamic, but it's, uh, it's available to help us with our lives. Uh, and so there are various ways we tap into it. I'm Chris Winger. And uh, I am uh, Director of Practice and Education for the uh, Shambhala Center of Atlanta. It seems to me when people come in the door, a lot of times what's maybe top of mind is a couple of questions. One would be, what does meditation have to offer me? And number two, percolating beneath that, which people may or may not be aware of, is what do I do with my fear? What do I do with my pain? What do I do with my loneliness? Um, depending what they're going through, that may be quite an urgent question for them at that time. Shambhala's aim isn't to create a utopia, nor do they have a political agenda. Rather, it's about something more basic and integral to our existence. We're a Vajrayana Buddhist community that is offering the wisdom, I guess, of ancient lineages in a way that is meant to benefit larger society. And uh, we grow out of uh, two particular lineages of Tibetan Buddhism, uh, the uh, Kagyu and the Nyingma, which is what uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who was the founder of Shambhala International, trained in as a young uh, Tolku in Tibet. There's a sort of fundamental wisdom that humans have already. Um, obviously, we, we, uh, we miss that a lot. We get out of touch and there's a lot of injustice in the world, a lot of horrible things that happen. But still, uh, there is a lot of wisdom at the root of... Um, our human nature and of human society. If there weren't, we probably wouldn't even be in a room together able to talk to each other. Connecting with that fundamental wisdom means that you have to be willing to sit with yourself, to be alone with your thoughts. And for anyone who's ever sat down to meditate for more than 30 seconds, well, you know how hard it can be, especially when you're after the holy grail of mindfulness, waiting for nothingness, or maybe even enlightenment to wash over you. It's really tempting um, to try and uh, approach meditation as a way of uh, kind of creating a certain level of consciousness or uh, um, tapping into it or whatever. Um, honestly, my experience is probably just best not to let that go. Uh, just not even worry about that. Um, because uh, otherwise, 
what you're doing is you're kind of grasping at your experience or grasping at some aspect of your experience. And uh, this style of meditation, which is called shamatha, peaceful abiding, is basically uh, opening to whatever is arising. Uh, and peaceful abiding, uh, people hear that and they think, oh, okay, well, I'm going to uh, create a peaceful state. And actually, I think what's more pertinent for people is the peace has to do with not struggling, not going to war with yourself, whatever comes up. So that when you realize that you're tense, you acknowledge that very honestly. Um, and you hold that, and there's some curiosity about it, without exactly trying to figure it out, just sort of an open intelligence that's directed towards it. And some warmth, uh, particularly, you know, it's probably going to be uncomfortable. And just some kind of uh, genuine warmth towards that sense of uncomfortable tension and just holding that without trying to diagnose, get rid of, solve, or find some other sort of thing. And asking ourselves not to solve something, to just let it be, is a mentally Herculean task. We like to fix whatever it is and move on. But even the idea that we could do that is an illusion, a story we tell ourselves in the moment to make ourselves feel better. Really, nothing is ever solved. Because this meditation is about not kind of creating a special place or a special level of consciousness, but it's sort of like, how can we inhabit our life more fully, more sanely? And of course, we all have challenges. You know, we, we come from different sorts of backgrounds and sets of conditions. And uh, within that, we can make a relationship with whatever all that stuff is, rather than fighting against it, rather than denying it. We can make a relationship with our tension, our anxiety, our loneliness, our fear. That's really pretty much where actually all of us have to start. And. Um, we can make a relationship with that of friendliness and openness and curiosity, and that does take a lot of courage to be willing to do that. Because uh, we would like to think that that's all gonna just disappear. Uh, and while meditation does definitely have some benefits, those benefits really come from being willing to kind of relax with those things, be with those things without fighting against them, without because that's what really piles on the suffering, is when we're struggling against things like that constantly. Sitting down and letting your thoughts come and go without judgment takes courage and trust. At bottom, it's because we really don't trust ourselves. And that's one thing uh, Trungpa Rinpoche said to his students uh, again and again, is trust yourself. You know, you can trust yourself. You actually have a lot of wisdom. You have a lot of uh, goodness, a, a lot of warmth. You know, you can trust yourself. And of course, you know, where people will make mistakes, we may make horrible mistakes, but, um, but that we cannot really fundamentally damage uh, uh, the, the sort of ground, the basic goodness of our being, that that's always there, always available to us, always uh, um, waiting for us, so to speak, to, to uh, connect with. 
But in opening up the space to do that, we're also opening up the space to see the play of our habitual patterns, some of which have tormented us for a very long time. Chris also points out another teaching, one about the confusion that can arise when you sit with your thoughts. Now, no one enjoys confusion because you're grappling with uncertainty and the unknown. But as Chris says, it's a condition for wisdom. Confusion is useful for bracketing off a space for insight into what's at the bottom of your anxiety and fear. The three qualities that are really important to carry when you uh, meditate or in your life altogether are gentleness, curiosity, and bravery. That's what really makes it all possible to, to move forward. Uh, and it's really quite a powerful process. It's, it's not uh, the sort of thing that's going to sort of solve all your problems in the next couple of weeks or all that. You, you, you'll still have plenty of ups and downs, but there's this sense that life really is not only worth living, but just remarkably rich and remarkably wonderful. Which brings us back to the wind horse idea that we could enter the vastness beyond the fog of our own thoughts. And the traditional uh, image in, in Buddhist teaching is that, in fact, our, our minds, our beings are like the sky. And what's going on is the weather, is the storms and all of that. We tend to be very fixated on that, all of that stuff. And we forget that actually there is this vastness, this vast quality to our being, which is open and fathomless. But when we sort of relax into it, there's a sense of tremendous expansion and wealth and relaxation that is available. For some people, entering that vastness takes another route. To that end, Debbie Ellis and Lori Sugarman host the Southern Fried Laughter Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. There's laughter yoga, storytelling, workshops, dancing, and sometimes kazoos make an appearance. Yeah, so we, we're actually laughter yoga leaders. Um, laughter yoga was started in 1995 by a doctor in India, Dr. Madan Kataria. Um, when he saw the benefits of laughter, so he decided to start this 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 movement. He and it spread all over the world. Um, it's now in like 60 countries, and uh, 60,000 people are doing it around the world. It's just been amazing. And and it starts on the premise that if you don't feel like laughing initially, you just go ha 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 because your brain doesn't know whether you're faking it or whether it's genuine. And of course, when you're with other people, we all know how contagious laughter, laughter is. To be clear, this is not a jokey conference. We do silly exercises mm -hmm. um, to make people laugh. We don't use humor. We don't tell jokes or anything like that. It's not based on humor at all because humor comes from your brain. And we're trying to teach people to be childlike and play from, with their bodies, from their bodies. And so we do silly exercises like... Uh, Would you we'll like do... to see a demonstration? <laughs> yes. okay. Let's do milkshake. Milkshake? Okay. okay. So we pretend like we're making a milkshake, and then we pretend like we're drinking it, and we laugh, so it looks like this. <laughs> <laughs> so we do lots of a series of silly exercises How about gibberish? Like that. Gibberish? Gibberish. 
gibberish. I'm just like, I need to For Debbie, laughter yoga came to her in an unexpected way. Yeah, Debbie had a lifelong desire to laugh. <laughs> she came out of the womb laughing. <laughs> no, I didn't. I was working with a peace and human rights organization. We were working with inmates. And um, th- we decided to take the training one day. My, the, the director called me and said we were going to take the laughter yoga training because we are going to take laughter into the prisons. And that's why I started doing it. And now I, I just love it so much. It's like my life's passion to helping spread joy in the world. You may not think of laughter as explicitly therapeutic, but consider what's happening at the physiological level. First, your brain hears or sees something funny and cues muscle function and emotion. Then the body deals with the dual tasks of laughing and breathing at the same time. And your heart pumps faster to replace the oxygen that your mouth expels. And though your face and stomach muscles engage, the rest of your muscles weaken, taking a break while the energy hog of laughter siphons off the body's resources. The stress hormone cortisol takes a brief holiday, and at the same time, endorphins release. In other words, a hearty laugh can take you to a brief yet altered state in 75 milliseconds or less. When you move into a state where you're just laughing hysterically um it you know there's just nothing like it um because of this sense of joyfulness and to me spirituality whether you call your spirit god whether you call it the divine whether you call it higher energy whatever you you call that that force or that field that's bigger and outside of us um whenever you feel this sense of incredible joyfulness and and happiness no matter who you direct it to, who or what you direct it to, whether it's in prayer, whether it's in meditation, whether it's laughing with someone and you're connecting as from human to human, I, I think that, um, you know, that's incredibly spiritual. It is. It's like being in an enlightened state. It's an enlightened state. It's like a higher consciousness that it takes you to the joy, the joy and rapture. For paintings from far away, you might perceive a cohesive, finished image. But if you could see under the layers of paint, your eyes would trace the wrecked early sketches beneath the erasure lines, the day the entire image was blotted out in black paint, and the day the painting was started anew. That we are works in progress is given, but that we could ever appear as something completely finished and perfected is pure illusion. So maybe it's not so much escape that we yearn for, but to tap into the untamed and boundless, those early sketches of ourselves that exist outside of time. To be a goat, a breath on the wind, a laugh released into the wild, to be more than the pain and suffering we endure, more than the war we wage against each other, more than the loops of thought that run over 
and over again in our minds. The Stuff of Life is written and executive produced by me, Julie Douglas, and co-produced by Noel Brown. Original music is by Noel Brown. This episode also featured music by Tristan McNeil, Aaron Grubbs, Eric Rinker, and Dylan Fagan. And editorial oversight is provided by contributing producer Dylan Fagan and head of production Jerry Rowland. Find The Stuff of Life on Facebook and Twitter and email us at thestuffoflife at howstuffworks.com. We'd like to hear your thoughts and stories, and you can share them with us by calling 1-844-HSW-STUFF. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. 